may be seated. Going to do things a little bit different today, and you'll understand as we go through. Any of you grew up in the 60s and 70s? Not a, you, you admit it, I appreciate that. A lot of us that grew up in the 60s and 70s are familiar with some of the identifying marks of the 60s and 70s. Wide lapels, leisure suits, platform shoes, silk shirts, flower children. I got to tell you this one. Now, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Started my first church. I'm a brand new youth pastor in my first church, and it's the very first time in that church I'm now one of the pastors celebrating communion. And if you remember in those days, and some of you do, how everybody that served communion normally were the elders, and they all had dark suits, right? Y'all remember that? Denny shows up very first time in his brand new church as the youth pastor in a pale green, pale blue, wide lapel suit with, it gets worse, white shoes and a white belt. (laughs) You got to see it. Thank the Lord. I don't have a picture of that. (laughs) But still in my head, 42 years later, is the picture of my senior pastor looking at me saying, what were you thinking? (laughs) I said, Nick, it's the only one I got. And you told me to wear a suit. Not that one. I mean, I still to this day after all of these years picture all of those guys in really dark suits, white shirts, and me in this pale light blue thing with the white shoes and the top and off the white belt. I'm going, what in the world was I thinking? In that era, there were a lot of people asking a number of questions. Typical questions like, who am I? What am I here for? What is life all about? Sadly, some are still trying to find the answer to those questions. Now, in the 80s, churches went through a similar routine. They were also trying to figure out, why are we here? What are we all about? What are we to do? What is our purpose? And so they were on a mission to write a mission statement, a vision statement, a purpose statement. Why we exist, what we're all about, what are we supposed to do, where are we going? All wonderful exercises, not a thing wrong with any of those. Although Jesus gave us some pretty clear, clear commands all the way back in the New Testament, but it was a great exercise to make sure that every single church understood their purpose, what they were all about, what they were here for, what they were to do. Because to be honest with you, a lot of them weren't doing that. They knew and understood exactly why they were there based on what Jesus had told them to do to take the gospel to the end of the earth, to make sure they care for people around them, to make sure they pray and give and strengthen. And and the list was endless, but a lot of them were going through motions week after week, sitting around holding hands, singing kumbaya, waiting for Jesus to return, haven't seen anything happen in their church miraculous in any way at all for years and years and years. Now, there were other churches that quit playing church. They really wanted to get serious. The seeker-sensitive church was taking off. And they decided to get very intentional about reaching those who never went to church or were disillusioned or burnt by a church. 
And they tried to be very creative in trying to get people to come to church, maybe visit us for the first time, or to come back and give us a try. It's not what it used to be. Allow us to help you to understand some of the amazing thing God wants to do in the context of a setting on a Sunday morning in a church that wasn't cold or stuffy to a gospel that was relevant to where they were living in life. Now, sadly, a lot of them were saying and being said about them that they were watering down the gospel to attract a crowd, which in most cases was not true, and in most cases said by people sitting in a church that had never seen a church grow all their life. One of the greatest things about that is we were reminded again of why we're here, what we're all about, and what we celebrate, and why we exist as a body of believers In your sermon notes, we want to make sure that we never forget one of the main reasons that God put us on this planet to begin with. He made us in his image to give him glory and honor and tell the world about his amazing grace. He created us to have a relationship with him. And out of that relationship comes praise and worship and adoration in response to who he is and what he has done and with a passion in your notes to pass on what you found out about God. To make sure that everybody that you know doesn't miss what you have found in Jesus. It is so amazing, so wonderful, so incredible. I have found freedom and forgiveness and grace and the list is endless. I want to tell somebody about that. And that passion began to get ignited. And people begin to understand why we're here and what we're all about. And we want to celebrate that fact. And we want to give God glory and grace. Biblical worship, in your notes, is an attitude and an activity, is an attitude and an act. Jesus said to the woman at the well, there's going to come a day when those true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. True worship takes place in the heart or inside the worshiper and expresses itself on the outside. It connects the spirit or heart of worship with the truth about God and the work of his redemption through Jesus. Jesus condemned worship that was only what he called lip service. And their heart wasn't in it. Their lips are moving. They're going through the motions. But there's nothing more beyond that. The Apostle Paul said that worship includes the singing of hymns, psalms, spiritual songs, prayer, giving, reading, and teaching of God's word. Most of what we do and most of the time we call this hour on a Sunday morning, which by the way we script for 65 minutes in case you wonder why it's not over in an hour, but it doesn't always happen that way. We call it the worship service. We worship the Lord with our singing as we celebrate his grace. We worship him with our giving. Giving is an act of worship, not an effort to make a point. It is an act of worship. I take and I recognize what I've been entrusted with and I give it back to God freely, willingly, knowing he has blessed me with so much. Worship is an opportunity to celebrate what God is doing in a person's life like we're going to do next Sunday morning. You don't want to miss that celebration of baptism. If you know Christ as your Savior, you want to make sure that everyone knows that. In most cases, it is a private decision. You've prayed after a service or with a friend or with a mom or a dad or in a Bible school class, or something like that, and you raise your hand, you said a prayer, you invited Christ into your life. But when we celebrate it, we want to celebrate it with everybody so that everybody sees what God has done in your life. And everybody gets a chance to hear the incredible story of how God transformed your life. It may be of a 70-year-old or a 70-year-old, doesn't matter, but an opportunity for us to celebrate what God is doing. We worship with our prayers. 
with the proclamation of the word of God. We worship with obedience to what we've heard by telling others about him. It's so much more than singing songs. The entire service is devoted to praising and worshiping God. Music, naturally, is one of those avenues or aspects of praise. Now, when you and I see the word praise, we see it as one word. And we probably have an idea of what we think that means. But to the Hebrew mind or the biblical mind, there were a number of types, a number of concepts, a number of aspects of praise. One meant we bow down before him. And in many cases, they would literally do that. Some of you grew up in a context in a church where when you walked in, you bowed. You recognized the reverence of that moment. Maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but that was one of the aspects of giving praise in a New Testament and Old Testament context. Many times it literally meant bowing your face before the ground or on the ground before that one you're honoring. Another meant with the raising or the lifting of the hands. The charismatics and Pentecostals do not have a market on this. Right? It's as old as the Old and the New Testament. It's an opportunity to declare before Almighty God to raise my hands in front of Him. I surrender. I give you everything. I acknowledge and recognize who you are. And I want to celebrate that fact. There's just something about my hands being raised toward heaven where I'm acknowledging who I'm giving praise to. If I, des- I know I've said this before, if I ever could design a church with the entire ceiling open so all I could see was the heavens and the glory, I would love that. In Pennsylvania, it would be a little odd this time of the year. I get that. Another means to praise him through a processional choir. Look at the screen. You're going to see if you ever get the opportunity to visit an African church, you're going to see they fully understand what it means to give praise to God through a processional choir. I mean, nobody stands still. Nobody is rigid. Nobody is just, that was nice. Good song. Thank you, Jesus. I mean, every aspect of their being is in the opportunity of giving praise. Another one means to dance before the Lord. David did that. I mean, David did it so much, his wife said, David, what are you doing? You're embarrassing us. David says, how can I not respond to what it is God did? They were bringing the ark, the the thing that represented the power and presence of Almighty God, back to Jerusalem where it belonged. And David was dancing. I mean, that guy was celebrating. His wife looked down from wherever she was and said, you're an embarrassment. David said again, how can I help but doing that? What's fascinating about that section of Scripture in 2 Samuel, it says, and from that point on, his wife was barren. Now, there are a lot of pastors like me who have taken that as saying, dead inside. Because she didn't fully understand or grasp. I get it. It probably meant not able to bear children, and I understand that. But it's unique that of all things that God would have pointed out in his word about that particular moment, there was that deadness inside. You you cannot see why I want to celebrate what God has done. You don't understand who he is and what he has done and why I just want to celebrate before Almighty God. Another means to praise him with the instruments. I think it's going to be on the screen, Psalm 150. If, 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 you're not, if you're never really sure where to go in the Word of God, you don't want to do uh, Bible roulette, which is mean. That's my verse for the day. You don't want to do that. But if you're, if you're really not sure, maybe you're not going through a section of Scripture, then go to the Psalms. 
Man, I read them all the time. I've read the Psalms, I can't tell you how many times. Every time I do, there's just something wonderful and magical about the opportunity to be able to see in words, in print, what I'm trying to say to Almighty God. And David does it better than probably anybody I know. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. With the timbre and the dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. With a clash of cymbals. With resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You ever wonder with those people who got upset a number of years ago when the drums and instruments showed up in church if they ever read that section of scripture? Because I've been in church long enough to know that that was a pretty big cultural shift for a lot of people when all of a sudden drums showed up on a Sunday morning at a church and then all the other instruments that went, went with that. Evidently, they never read this section of Scripture because God said it 3,000 years ago. Everything that has movement and sound and a breath ought to give praise to God. More instruments than you can imagine on the stage of in that kind of setting when they're giving praise and adoration to God. Another one was to praise Him with sustained singing. Deep from the soul, deep from the spirit, not from a book or a screen, just somehow singing from the heart. I have no idea how my wife does it. She sings all the time. She has music in her head. She knows how to hit the note. I'm lucky to hit the note when I hear the note. But there's just that well up inside of you that wants to sing, wants to celebrate. Notice in your notes, every one of the things that I just mentioned a moment ago are action words. They're all action words. Remember, when you talk about praise, you talk about an activity and an attitude. Praise has to be something you see, something you notice. When I look at your face, when I watch you, I love watching the choir. I love watching the people on the stage. I love every once in a while turning around and watching you. There's just something about it that ought to be evidence, that, that I ought to see. I love watching some of the different faces, especially in this case, I've watched them grow up. There's just nothing more fun than watching Mark Miller play the drums, especially in that second song that we sang this morning. I mean, he is so into it, every fiber of his being. I saw one of the gals playing electric guitar last week, and she's not only playing the guitar and playing the notes, she's singing the songs. She's expressing the songs. I went up to her afterwards and said, honey, I don't know how you do that. I'm lucky to be able to know what I'm doing at that very moment, let alone all three things that you did on Sunday morning, but you were engaged. It ought to be something we see. Thursday's Thanksgiving. Maybe that's why I had Wednesday and Thursday mixed up all the time when I was giving the announcement. And when you think of that, there are a number of things that come through your mind. Family gatherings. A host of people. Relatives, there was a thing on, I think it was Fox News the other night, that said, how long is the average time you want to spend with your relatives on Thanksgiving? You know what the answer was? Four hours. That's what they said, which is a long time. (laughs) Actually, when I found out that was the average, that's not bad. Family gatherings, turkey and stuffing, a table filled with food, pumpkin pie. You've got to have pumpkin pie. You don't have rhubarb pie on Thanksgiving. It's got to be pumped. And football games. And it's all of those things, right? It's all of those things. But Thanksgiving is more than an event or a holiday. It is an attitude. 
an attitude about life, an attitude about God, an attitude that I want to express. The Apostle Paul and the Psalmist David saw it as an expression of the heart and soul that doesn't originate in the mind, it is an overflow of the heart. Not a product of positive thinking, but an expression of joy that comes deep, deep, deep down inside that has to come out. And the question is, does God deserve any less? Paul seems to answer that question in Romans chapter 12 when he spends an entire 11 chapters talking about the incredible wonder of God. I mean, the list is endless. If you ever want to do a Bible study on a particular book, man, do Romans. And you walk through everything that we were and what God did and what he accomplished, no condemnation in Christ. Even while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And the list is endless, and he walks through all of those things. And then he comes to verse 12 or chapter 12 and and, and almost stop. Therefore, in light of what I just said, I beg you, I plead with you, I urge you. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's grace, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that is true and proper worship. Not what we think is proper or improper when it comes to instrumentation or any of those things. That, he said, is true and proper worship. When I recognize in light of God's mercy, in light of God's grace, I give, I sing, I pray, I declare, I listen, I read, I respond, I'm obedient, I walk out and can't wait to tell. Positive worship And when I say worship, obviously the whole thing, believe it or not, can even convince an unbeliever that God is alive, that God is powerful, and God is relevant. Not out there somewhere and not confined to the pages of a book that is 2,000 years old, but God is still alive. God is still relevant. God is still active. God is still someone to be praised, and I want to show that. I want to express that. I want you to see it. I want you to recognize it. Believe it or not, there are people that walk into our sanctuary on a regular basis who do not have a personal relationship with God, and they walk out, many of them, who later have told me their stories, saying, I had no idea that God was still that alive and that relevant, not because we're a wonderful church. It's just because we really also understand that and want to express it, want people to see it and understand that God still is the God who's been around forever and will be and allows us the opportunity to corporately gather as a family of God to give him praise and to celebrate that. And you got to be honest with it. There's not a lot of people that see that on a regular basis. And when they see it, they say, wow. We do membership class two times a year, and everybody gets a chance to tell their story. Why us? There are 40-some churches in town. You know that sign at the beginning of the town that says we're a church-going community? It means we've tried them all, and we go to all these, and, we, and now, now why us? Why, why us? And We'll hear all these stories, and we'll hear all these things. And some of them really don't know a personal relationship with Jesus, but they knew there was something about what they were seeing here that they had not seen before and wanted to know more of that. And we have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. Notice David not only talks about what I do while I'm here in God's presence, but I I love, especially in one of the ones that we read in Psalms, I love his focus on what I need to have as my attitude before I get here. Notice it says, come before him with thanksgiving or joyful songs. Enter with thanksgiving. Enter, walk in 
As I walk in, I'm walking in with thanksgiving. I am entering with praise. And when I leave, I serve the Lord with gladness. It is a heart so full of God that it needs to express a place to express it or it's going to explode. How many of you are grandparents? All right. I mean, ask a grandparent about their grandkids. They're just dying for you to ask them. Do you have any grandkids? Yep, they have seven. Do you have any grandkids? Got six. Have any grand? Boy, I got pictures. I saw some this morning. I dedicated one this morning. Ask any grandparent about their grandchildren, and I'm telling you, they've been dying for somebody to ask them that question, especially if it's a new one. Thanks and praise not only are responsibles to what God has done for me and given to me, it is a response to God being God. It flows out of the relationship that I have with the person of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the power of the Spirit. It should even be more so for those of us on this side of the cross. Now, there's no way that you'll ever picture in your mind what it must have been like to grow up in the Old Testament context. Where you've waited all of your life. We're going to start a Christmas series in a few weeks. And where you've waited and waited and waited. The Messiah is promised. The Messiah is coming. Here we are back in captivity. Finally get out of captivity. The Messiah is coming. We're going to be rescued. Back into captivity again. And the list is endless. And they've waited and they've waited and they've waited and they've waited and they died. And another generation waited and died. And here you and I on this side of the cross. You can't even imagine it. But on this side of the cross we ought to be the ones that have the most to praise him for. Because the Messiah did come. The Messiah was born. The Messiah was a man. The Messiah did die on a cross for my sins and your sins. The Messiah rose from the dead. The Messiah went to heaven. The Messiah sent us his spirit to dwell in us, to live in us, to empower us, and enable us to be everything we're designed to be. Those of us on this side of the cross, on the New Testament context, we ought to be the ones that get it the most and ought to give him the most praise. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We're his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Can you imagine what it was like on the way to church with David? I mean, picture it in your mind. You're what now, number one, he's written it. Number one, he plays instruments. He plays songs. He's been singing since he was a boy and a shepherd out in the backside of the wilderness somewhere, tending sheep, strumming or playing. And so he understood and understood that context. But can you imagine now, you fast forward to David writing these songs, and you're on the way to church with him. And he is excited. I mean, he is juiced. I can't wait. Man, I get to come together with a family of God. I get to sing. And he's written. I wrote a new one. You're never going to. I wrote a brand new one. Enter his course with thanksgiving. Enter his course with praise. And then he shares the new one. I got to believe that they weren't contained just in that moment when he's writing by the Spirit as he knows and probably understands that he's expressing his heart to God, having no idea that he's writing the Bible. But he just wants to express it. And so he does. And I wonder what it was like to walk with him to church. Say, I, I wrote a new one for us today. I can't wait for you to enjoy it. I can't wait for you to hear it. I, I know you know this. But we live in a three-dimensional world. I, I, I get you know that. But some people, in a sense, live in a one-dimensional world. 
They don't really see what's going on around them. What they see is a straight line that goes ahead. Get my goals accomplished, finish my day, start it over again the very next day. Some of them, if they're not careful, can even worship God like that. Go to church, do my thing for God, and that's it. Now, two-dimensional people see a larger picture. They recognize what's going on around them. Christians in that two-dimensional world, they pray with one another, they share their burdens with each other, they sing songs, they bring their offerings. But if that's all they know, there's something missing. There's no up. It's not just what's going on around me, it's not just what's in front of me, it's what's above me. It's limitless and beautiful. It's beyond committees and meetings and agendas and organizational structure. Up has thrones and beauty and power and strength. It gives meaning and perspective to all the other dimensions of life. Imagine a little boy watching a parade through a knothole in the fence. So he sees a clown and he laughs. He sees a lion and he's afraid. There's a gap in between, and he thinks the parade is over. Somebody blocks his view, and he doesn't know there's a parade at all. But if someone picks him up and puts him on their shoulders above the fence, then he begins to see a whole other level that he hadn't seen before. Up there, he sees a good part of the parade, and if he got even higher, he could see the whole parade at once. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we see worship through that knothole. We come to a service and we only see what's going on around us. Who's there, who's not. Music too fast, too slow, too loud, too long. We think about the week and what we're going to do. Will I ever get my Christmas shopping done? But what about up? Those in genuine worship never focus on themselves, but who they've come to worship. Lakato, one of my favorite authors in his book, Just Like Jesus, compares to a worship service to a plane ride. When you're on a plane, there are three things you want it to do. Take off, fly safely, and land, right? And as I'm sitting on a plane, I've been in 23 countries and six continents. Every single time of the 160,000 times I've gotten on a plane, I pray almighty God for those three things to happen. That it to take off. I've got angels at every wing. I've got angels in every empty seat. I've got angels in the pilot's cabin. I don't care that the door's locked. They can get in. I just want that plane to fly safely. Go where it's to go. Land safely on the other side. I picture in my mind God's hands gently setting it down. Not roughly. Not. Just. I remember one time landing in Bradford, Pennsylvania on a short flight. And the pilot came over the radio and said, does anybody see the runway? I'm going, don't tell me that. <laughs> Does anybody see the runway? And then he goes, it's like he doesn't know. He's talking to somebody in the cockpit, not knowing we all hear it. Oh, I think I see it. I think you see it. Oh, there it is. Okay. Oh, we missed it. You know, I went to a dentist a few weeks ago, and he said, oops, I'm okay with that one. I don't want the pilot to say, oops. Goes around. Okay, I got it now. I can't believe he's telling us all of this. I got got it now. I I think I see it. We're going to land. Whoop, nope, we missed it again. Third time, he said, if we don't see it now, we're going to Jamestown. I said, I don't care where you go. Just land the plane. Give me a parachute. I'm off now. You want that, right? You want them to fly safely, land safely, and get there okay. We say things like, you know, nice flight to the stewardess. Thank you, pilot, for getting us down. 
He said, we do that sometimes with a service. Nice service, we say to the pastor. But there's that little boy who wants to see the pilot. And when he does, he is in awe. And you see it on his face. Praise is acknowledging God for who he is. Thanksgiving is gratitude for what he has done. David in Psalm 100 (laughs) infers that when we come into God's temple and into his presence, I'm looking for a place to express it. It's almost as if he's saying, I've got to get to the house of God and tell everything how wonderful God is and what he has done. If we're really honest, what you and I enjoy, most of the rest of the world can only dream about. What you and I enjoy, most of the rest of the world only dreams about. About life, about freedom, about family. For Christians, the list is unbelievably long. We had no hope, but God took us in and clothed us and fed us from the food on his own table. He made us join heirs with his only son. In your notes, we have forgiveness, a father, a family, and a future. We have redemptive grace, constant care, overwhelming love. His promise to never leave us or forsake us, even to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. In Christ, we are beyond condemnation. We have been delivered from the law. We're delivered from the power of evil. We are members of his kingdom, justified by his grace, adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. We have access to God at any moment. We will never be abandoned, and we have an unbelievable future. We are members of his body, branches in the vine, stones in the building, bride for the groom, and a dwelling place of the spirit of the living God. You and I possess every spiritual blessing imaginable. And knowing that, man, we ought to praise. It ought to be so evident in us that the place almost sees the roof beginning to move. This morning we're going to celebrate communion. What a great day to celebrate communion in the light of the message. And we're going to celebrate it. Sometimes we celebrate communion kind of reflective, kind of quiet. But today we're going to celebrate it because it ought to be both. We're not waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah is here. We're not wondering what he's going to do and if he's just a great teacher. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, you've given your life to him, this is your table. You're invited to the banquet table of the king, bought and paid for by the price of his son. And you and I get to take these elements, hold them in our hands, reflect for a moment, and partake of them. This morning, in a moment, all the communion stewards and stewardesses are going to come down. They're going to serve you all through the sanctuary, and Dave's going to continue to lead us in worship. When you're ready, different than we normally do, Take the bread, take the cup, and share it. And then just continue to enjoy the celebration of God's amazing grace. Communion stores where you come. Father, we thank you for everything you've done. The list is endless, only a snippet of all the things that I could have shared. We did this morning, and so we're delighted. Then in these final moments of our worship experience this morning, we can take these elements and hold them in our hands and be reminded again of your grace. And we can sing. We can celebrate. We can give you praise. We can spend this Thanksgiving week 